Hi there, and welcome to the Eat Your Greens podcast. I'm your host, Maya Lopin, and I'm here to deliver you your regular fix of greens through insightful interviews with experts and wonderful, passionate people in the field of environmental sustainability. Whether you are an expert yourself or just looking for some friendly background conversation while you go about your day, tune into these episodes to learn more about some current amazing people and initiatives tackling environmental issues. Who knows, maybe you'll hear something you like and be inspired to take on a project of your own. Welcome to Eat Your Greens, the first step towards making a difference. Hello, listeners, and welcome to episode nine of the Eat Your Greens podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Christine Amour-Levar. Christine is the founder of the Christine Amour-Levar, or CAL, Consultancy, a service which supports companies to grow sustainably. She is also a founding partner of Women on a Mission, an organization which aims to raise funds and awareness for women that have been subjected to violence and domestic abuse. In addition to this, Christine is the founder and CEO of Her Planet Earth, which also raises funds for programs that empower underprivileged women and engage them in environmental protection initiatives. She is also the co-founder of Investors for Climate, a company which aims to promote sustainability by engaging investors, venture capitalists, sovereign wealth funds, and more into climate investment. So good to sit down with you, Christine. I'm really looking forward to the discussion today. It's a pleasure to be on your show, Maya. Thanks for reaching out and inviting me. Let's just start with um, your consultancy, uh, Christina Morlevar or CAL Consultancy, which you mm. founded in 2019 and you now lead as the Chief Catalyst Officer, which focuses on social impact and sustainability. So as you stated on your site, your expertise with this consultancy lies in helping clients shape brand strategies that foster innovation, social impact, and sustainable growth. And CAL Consultancy also engages in ecotourism initiatives and exclusive climate investment networking events, promoting sustainable innovation discussions among sustainability leaders and impact investors. So could you tell us a bit about what drove you to start this company and how you came to develop uh, the services that you currently offer? Sure, happy to do that. Um, So regarding my consultancy uh, business, Amaya, it it actually started um, earlier. It started before 2019. Actually, I've been running uh, and operating as an independent consultant for almost 10 years now. And the way I started it actually was because I was getting so many opportunities to work um, as a consultant, as a project manager on various um, initiatives. Uh, Let me backtrack a little bit. Uh, I've been in Singapore 18 years. I first came to Singapore to work for Nike. I was running the marketing for Nike, and I left that organization uh, to to found my first nonprofit called Women on a Mission, which you you mentioned, uh, with two co-founders to support women impacted by violence and abuse through expeditionary travel. Um, And as I started that first one, um, because I was doing so much networking and organizing events and talking to sponsors and doing public speaking, I had uh, quite a few companies approach me to see if I could work as a consultant, primarily first uh, comms and marketing, because that was my background. And eventually um, it evolved into other services because of the opportunities that came about. So setting up the consultancy was actually because there was a demand for Uh, my services, if you will, 
from different companies. And my first client actually uh, was Temasek Trust, the, the philanthropic arm of the Sovereign Wealth Fund here in Singapore, where I worked for the CEO there for about five years exclusively as my main client. Um, and then after that, after 2019, I actually set it up properly because I, I started taking on other clients. And so today it's me and a couple of project managers working with multiple clients, mostly in tech. Um, and it really came out of a, a, an opportunity to, to basically work on multiple uh, projects. It wasn't something, um, to be very honest, it wasn't a strategic choice by me to set up uh, this, this branch of my, of, my, of, my, of my career. You know, it, it was just because I had these opportunities. And as, as when you have opportunities with companies, they'll always need you to send the, the bill, you know. And, and so I said, okay, I'll set up a separate entity because all my nonprofit work uh, is unpaid. I chose uh, that business model uh, very early on. Uh, I wanted to focus on being an advocate and a fundraiser for my charity partners. And I didn't want to take a salary um, from my philanthropic work. And so I needed to create an entity, a legal entity for my other paid work, if you will. And so through my consultancy, I also um, not only work with multiple clients, but I also build my speaking engagements, um, my my book sales. I came out with a book as well. So it it is actually a vehicle to allow me to operate independently. Um, you know, with multiple stakeholders and clients. Um, and today it has evolved because I've worked with so many different clients over the last almost ten years now. Uh, and originally, as I mentioned, uh, clients came to me because of my background in comms and marketing. But it has evolved into giving them advice around CSR because of all my work with my nonprofits and my knowledge, my deep knowledge with different um, charities around the world. And of course, in sustainability, and in, in has included uh, things like ecotourism as well because I do that through my my one of my NGOs, Her Planet Earth, and climate investing as well. So looking for uh, you know uh, investors for startups um, and different entities. Uh, so because of my my network that I've built over the years. Okay, so that's very a little bit about that consultancy. Yeah, so it's quite broad actually, and it's really I've been enjoying um, running it with my two project managers because we never. I wanted to say that I've been very lucky that we've never had to look for clients or never had to look look for work. Uh, work always comes to us and finds us, and I get requests either through people referring uh, me or through LinkedIn. Uh, you know, or a friend of a friend saying, oh, so, you know, this company is looking for somebody to run a workshop or on female empowerment or somebody wants them, uh, wants your help with their comms around sustainability. And when you start building a bit of a reputation in the market and because it aligns so well with my nonprofit work, uh, in a way, it's been it's been nice because uh, the work has come without me really having to look for it. Right. And. So from this uh, experience, as you say, that you've never had to actually look for clients, would you say that companies are very motivated to, to improve in the sustainability um, factor, like sector? Mm-hmm. Or Well, I mean, many years ago, like 10 years ago, CSR, uh, which included um, initiatives in the community, for example, or even around sustainability, was often considered as a nice to have. It was a separate initiative, you know, that sometimes either employees would get involved with or HR would run, um, you know, separately. But more and more, what I've noticed, of course, is that it has become front and center of many corporations' strategy and focus, 
which is wonderful to see, actually, as the climate uh, climate change has become more urgent and as uh, ESG, the S of ESG, you know, the social um, kind of responsibilities have come to the surface as, as something that's so important. Companies are now, um, you know, really including it in their strategy and putting it at the heart of what they do because they realize that not only do their employees want that, but their customers want that as well. And it's a it's a responsibility on their part as they operate in multiple markets and touch many lives through, um, you know, the, the factories that they run or the, the, the offices that they have all over the world, the employees they have and and also the resources they take. So I've been really gratified to see that, uh, you know, many years ago it was not such a focus, but more and more it is. And it has become, um, you know, something that companies want to to be seen and trying to do the right thing, uh, not just through their communication, but are actually looking at their whole product cycle and seeing if they can uh, fix certain um, factories and products uh, as well so that it doesn't pollute the environment and that it is kind to nature, but also uh, find ways to give back to the communities where they operate in. Okay, that's wonderful to hear that there's been this paradigm shift uh, in in corporates and yeah. um, companies to to focus on sustainability. And are you able to share any of the like significant projects that you've that you've worked on? Like how how do you introduce sustainability into these companies? What does a general kind of support from your company look yeah. like? So, I mean, my projects have been so, so varied. Okay. So, for example, I worked with a tech company during the pandemic that wanted to upskill its uh, uh, women's leadership team um, and get them more aware of sustainability. And before I did that, I, I actually did a bit of a, a deep dive to find out the knowledge around sustainability that already existed. You know, before you put a program together around that, uh, you want to find out first what, what, how much do people really know. And I realized that this company, um, there was not so much awareness of even some of the most basic facts in terms of uh, what is actually uh, causing the acceleration of climate change, how are emissions um, you know, by sector around the world uh, evolving, uh, how does that contribute to global warming. So I actually had to step back and, and kind of give more of a broad macro overview of what was happening with the climate and how then it impacted um, kind of different sectors of the world and different sectors of the economy, and then how them as a technology company, uh, what role they had to play and, and how do they fit into all of that. So that would be one example is, is to actually, uh, when you come in as a consultant, you listen to your client's request and then you, you assess and then you recommend uh, a program, for example, or a course. Uh, with other clients, you know, there were very specific uh, requests. Um, so one of them was uh, in food tech, uh, also during the pandemic, where they wanted me to uh, be a spokesperson um, to share a vision of a different food system, you know, uh, and introduce uh, a product that had never been sold before, which was cultivated meat, so meat made in a bioreactor, to their investors and to their stakeholders. So my role was to really explain the technology, uh, explain how it was made, that it was safe, uh, what was the thinking behind the company, and, and why did they had why did they want to 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 make such a product? What did it mean in the environmental sense? You know, in terms of um, what's the alternative, right? Today we slaughter billions of animals for food, and why is this company then uh, creating cultivated meat? So meat made without having the need to kill an animal in a bioreactor. Uh, so I mean, the the, the clients, you know. Are, are so different and the needs they have are so different um, that sustainability touches so many things, right? It doesn't just touch 
communication around uh, sustainability internally and externally. It also touches uh, the whole product cycle. Um, and if I and if you're talking about a company that then wants to uh, talk fundraise, for example, for a project that they're um, initiating around sustainability, then those are again different needs, right? So fundraising needs, communications needs, um, employee engagement needs, all this are um, kind of different requests from clients that I've gotten over the years. Um, uh, you know, leadership development training around sustainability and diversity and inclusion. What's the connection between um, DNI and sustainability also? And so sometimes the, pro- the programs that I create for my clients are really custom made, if you will. Uh, depending on what I hear are their needs and their requests. So that's the beauty of consultancy is you can really tailor make any kind of uh, initiative and you can pull people in. So I've worked with other people that I've pulled in on different projects, different speakers, different experts, depending on the brief that I get from a client, I'll pull in two or three different people to come in in and work with me on on certain initiatives. Interesting. So as a consultant, I suppose you have to be really... Uh, incredibly flexible and resourceful, as you as you mentioned, to adapt to the needs that are asked of you from different companies. Absolutely. And if you talk to people who work for some of the big consulting companies like Accenture, um, Deloitte, and, you know, some of the other big brands, you know, they operate that way too. They'll get a brief from a, from a client and there'll, there'll be a special uh, request uh, or a special project, and then they'll set up the best team around them for this project, depending on what the client needs are. So that's how consultants work generally. Um, they are supposed to be, of course, quite knowledgeable on certain topics, but if they don't, then they can pull in experts to partner with them. And I've done that over the years many times. Mm, okay. And as you were talking earlier, um, you mentioned that there is lacking even like a basic understanding of uh, sustainability and um, related terms in the workplace and in a lot of the companies that you've worked with. and. You've kind of already touched on this, but sustainability is a really, really broad and evolving concept. So how how do you define it within the context of your consulting services? Uh, that's a great question. And it's true that it is very broad uh, for different people. So my, my focus, if you will, is more around the communication piece because of my background. Um, you know, there are other experts out there that might look at um circularity, for example, of uh, a product cycle, and that would not be my expertise. So I generally approach it in terms of uh, communicating internally and understanding what is the strategy and vision for the company around sustainability, uh, making sure the employees are on board. So that's really important to make sure that it's not just top down, you know, that also um, that knowledge and understanding of what the the company is trying to do. So that requires um, communicating internally and working with stakeholders or different groups or sustainability groups. Sometimes companies don't have that in place. Uh, And so that requires either um, working with the people who are have been assigned to do that. And then, uh, you know, looking at how they're um, how they're trying to change the way they're doing business in the different markets that they operate in and then make recommendations in terms of, well, you know, um, if you need to reduce carbon emissions in your whole product cycles and we'll pull in this uh, this company or this expert um, or if you are actually um, uh, still needing to progress around communicating uh, sustainability efforts uh, through your marketing, but making sure that it is actually authentic in all your product cycles. So that needs to be aligned. So then you pull in different stakeholders from the company and work with them and make sure that the values that the companies are putting out there are really being followed and um, that they're aligning their actions with their values and not the other way around. So it's really, I mean, 
the values of the companies are really interesting to to look at, you know, and when I do keynotes, because I do a lot of keynotes for corporates as well, one of the first things I do is I look at their company values, you know, mission statements, vision, and really try to understand um, and how it reflects. So I ask them to share with me some of the other initiatives that they've done either on their CSR side as well as um, or around sustainability, what are some of the initiatives they've done in the past, and communicate that internally as well uh, with their employees. And so, because a lot of their employees don't even know that their companies are actually involved in many great initiatives um, and that are aligned with the values that they uh, they put out on their website. So, there's you're noticing a disconnect in companies between this awareness of their their initiatives. Why do you think this happens? Because um, I think a lot of employees are in, working in their silos, um, and so they, you know, get to work and they they're just focusing on what they're doing. And a lot of times, unless they're really making an effort to to bond with the the bigger ecosystem of the company, or or you know, ask questions, or are in other groups, it's easy to just you know look at your job as your nine to five, and then feel that there's a disconnect. A lot of employees actually feel powerless uh, in terms of the bigger climate change issue, for example. And I often tell them that you don't need to quit your job um, to, to raise awareness about climate change or take action. Look at your, yourself. You're a student. You're, you're busy with your schoolwork. But on the side, you've created this podcast. It's your way of taking uh, climate action as well, and, uh, among other things I'm sure that you're doing. So there's always a way to, to make an impact, isn't there? Um, and I think when you're Working on something, of course, ideally, if you, if you find purpose in the work you do. But if, for example, your passion lies somewhere else, then uh, some people actually have um, other initiatives on top of their work. And eventually, my advice to people is to, for you to be really aligned and happy and productive. Of course, the best would be that the job that you have is actually what you're truly passionate about. Right. But sometimes it doesn't always start out like that in life. And and sometimes it's OK to have it as a side to have a side hustle, as they say, you know, and then if that grows and develops, maybe that becomes your main, um, your main occupation at the end. Yes, yes, absolutely. And so how did, if you don't mind me asking, how did you actually grow your, your knowledge, uh, your knowledge bank about sustainability? Because you mentioned that you started in uh, comms and marketing, and you're, you're suggesting that everyone can get involved, even if they're not uh, originally starting with that that interest or their job is not related to that. Yeah. So my my sustainability journey really started when I set up my second NGO. So five years after I set up Women on a Mission, I I realized that uh, women were disproportionately impacted not just by violence and abuse and economic crisis, but also by climate change. Through my travels and through my expedition, I started doing more research around it. So I educated myself. I tried to take courses. I tried to read articles. I asked questions. And I decided to set up Her Planet Earth because I saw that uh, women were disproportionately impacted all over the world. Of the 1.3 billion poor people around the world, first of all, the majority, of, uh, close to 70% are women. And if you look at our region of Asia in particular, you'll see that the majority of the agricultural roles are, are held by women. And so they already are at the forefront of climate change. There's an, there is um, um, uh, a situation uh, taking place in Asia in particular, and also in parts of Central Africa. It's called the feminization of agriculture, where in, in developing countries or poorer countries, men will go to the cities to look for jobs while women and children are left to tend to the crops. And so when the climate shifts dramatically, they are usually the most impacted. So seeing that, you know, that was my, the beginning of my sustainability journey. So 
I started, of course, fundraising and advocating for women impacted by climate change as a best as a, as a way to mitigate as well um, climate change. Was supporting, uh, you know, raising funds for initiatives that made women's livelihood more resilient to 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 the climate uh, crisis. Um, and by building women's uh, livelihoods and making them a bit more resilient, you were helping a community, you were helping a nation. So it's, it's, it, that's how it started. And then I learned a lot from the NGOs that I was supporting too, because some of them are focused in conservation. Some of them are focused on um, uh, wildlife conservation. For example, with a project we did in Kenya, I partnered with an environmental NGO in the Philippines called, called the Sulubai Foundation that works on coral restoration. And over the years, and it's been almost six, seven years, now with her planet earth you know by being involved and active in the space you learn right so you're learning you're educating yourself you're you're listening to to videos and projects and then i started getting involved with food tech and learning more about the emissions around uh, you know the agriculture and food um, and the and how much water we were using uh, to 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 farm uh, you know land and animals and you you just start learning along the way because you're you're mixing with these people you're networking with them you're working with them you're advocating for them I I, I became a more active speaker in the in the space of sustainability and then through the the fundraising initiatives that I got involved with with some of my tech startups I started mixing with people who are investing in sustainability and so I started learning more about how VCs work and venture builders work. Um, it's a whole different vocabulary. You know, um, I studied business and economics at school, but I didn't work in finance. And the funny thing is my first internship out of university when I was still in Japan was in a bank, a French bank. And I remember thinking I never want to work in a bank. <laughs> I, I wasn't inspired by my internship. And the, the, the funny thing is now I'm, I'm working with a lot of uh, family offices and VCs and banks. Um, trying to see how we can move capital towards innovative solution because I realized that even though the work I've been doing in, in over the last 12 years in philanthropy is still a very positive thing it has its own ripple effects it's still it's just a drop in the ocean right in philanthropy there's a there's you know billions of dollars being given to good causes around the world but I, I feel that the urgency is so strong that we need to rally more money and capital to scale innovative solutions that are going to find um, ways for us to tackle the climate crisis because we are running out of time in terms of the emission where the emissions are still going up and technology will be one of the ways to solve it i believe uh, you know that and with a very deep conviction and to scale those technologies we need money and so now i'm i'm finding that that journey has taken me to work with investors so it's been like a co co connection of, of of dots if you will you know it wasn't it wasn't so intentional i'm going to learn about sustainability i just saw that there was vulnerability of women impacted by climate change. I wanted to do something about it. I wanted to fundraise and support them. So I did it with through sports and adventure, which is something I care deeply about. And then through that experience, that gave me so much more exposure to the, the causes, the, you know, some of the, 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 the work that the charities were doing, uh, you know, constantly talking with them, interacting with them, visiting their work on the ground when I was able to in certain countries where we were trekking with teams of women. And then eventually with my consultancy, getting approached, you know, with philanthropy, like Temasek Trust, you know, many of their foundations, not all of them are focused on sustainability, but many are involved in science and technology and looking at uh, different ways to uh, strengthen livelihoods of uh, population in the ASEAN uh, region as well. So all this connects and you learn as you evolve. And that's the beauty of, you know, having a career. I call my career a portfolio career. 
because I don't have one specific hat. I have m- many hats. Um, and, and as a result, I'm always trying to learn and grow and, and, and read up and, and learn new ways, new vocabulary in different industries. But as a result, you start becoming more knowledgeable. Um, you know, yesterday I went to a conference, um, a tech uh, in Asia conference around climate tech and sustainability. And we were having roundtables with different investors in, in, in climate tech. And, you know, over now it's only been two, three years that I've been involved with this, but I'm becoming much more comfortable and familiar with the vocabulary, the, the issues, um, the type of investments that people are looking, the terms that are being used. So there is no cap on when you can learn about uh, anything. And that's, that, that's what excites me too, is that I'm constantly learning uh, from people around me and, and then getting asked to speak about it. When you get asked to speak and comment about it, you have to do more research. I just came back from a conference in Bangkok uh, by the UN. Uh, the conference was uh, called the Feminist Finance Forum. And I was asked to speak on my vision for um, a gender smart climate finance. You know, And remember, I'm not a banker or anything like that. But as a result of my involvement and in the initiatives I've started, including one I started recently with a partner of mine is called Investors for Climate. So we organize events in New York and Singapore around climate investing. I am mixing with, the, with, with that crowd and with the people who, are, who care deeply about investing in sustainability. And then you learn along the way. Uh, I wouldn't call myself an expert, but I'm learning more and I'm becoming more knowledgeable about sustainability in many different angles, if you will. Thank you. That that's so so inspiring. Yeah. That you really you really seem to love learning. I can hear it in your voice that you're, you're so passionate about the causes that you're involved with, and that's that's so inspiring for me as a Thank young person you, to Maya. hear. Um, so before we dive into Woman on a Mission and her planet Earth, I just wanted to go back to the investment and um, technologies. Uh, part of this conversation, are there any examples of technologies that? that you feel could be up and coming and have a lot of potential for, for climate solutions? So there's quite a few. Because I'm involved with a, with a VC, actually, at the moment, I sit on the board of an Australian VC called Investable. We are launching a climate tech fund in Singapore, and we already have a climate tech fund in Sydney. I get exposed to a lot of the startups in, my, in our portfolio. So there's one, for example, um, that just won a, a prize uh, called the Livability Challenge Prize. They won a million dollars. Uh, from Singapore government uh, recently, and we were the first money invested in that company. It's an oral vaccine for shrimp and fish to, to, to cure them of a disease that usually wipes out, you know, millions of, of, of these um, animals. Um, and so this was started by a scientist. So that's one of the companies in our portfolio. There are other companies that we've invested in, like uh, electric vehicles for small aircrafts, because obviously, you know, uh, aviation is, a, is, is quite a... Um, it's an industry that is, of course, uh, be- reliant currently on oil and gas, and, and, and it is increasing emissions, right? So we need to find a solution, and people are not just going to stop traveling. Um, so one of the ways to, to look at it is to look at electric vehicles uh, and different ways of doing it. And it's still a long way away, but these are game-changing innovations that if we scale up, could reduce emissions in aviation, could reduce emissions in, in food production. We are we have invested in companies that look at uh, reducing water wastage in agriculture as well. So, we're, um, so you know, there are amazing technologies out there. Um, that uh, And the way we look at it is we look at the six areas of the UN to decarbonize. So um, it would be smart cities, energy, industry, uh, land and forestry, uh, transport, um, 
uh, and then food and agriculture. Um, so there, you know, th- those are the industries that we need to decarbonize to really make a dent on the emissions. And so when we look at investments, we look at making sure that we have companies represented in each of these uh, industries that we've invested in in our portfolio. Um, and, and obviously we select through, th- we look at thousands of startups every year and maybe talk to a- about 150 of them, you know. Uh, and then finally invest in a handful of them. So there, there's a whole selection process. And as a result, you meet really innovative uh, technologies, you know, ways of reducing emissions in, in air conditioning, uh, water saving, um, agriculture, different ways of transportation, batteries. Um, it's really fascinating. Uh, I'm enjoying that part of my work now, um, getting kind of face-to-face to young, innovative founders. Uh, and some of them are not young. Some of them are repeat uh, founders as well who have already exited from their first companies or are starting other companies. It's a very exciting space. And the truth is we have a lot of technology out there. And to actually solve the climate crisis, we just have to keep uh, finding the, the, the right ones to scale up uh, so that they really have an impact and that we make we make a game-changing, um, we, 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 put the hi- we highlight the game-changing ones that are going to really make a difference um, for our future and for your future. You're, you're the future, you're, you're age group, you know, and that was one of the reasons I was so happy to get your invitation, you know, because I do get a lot of invitation for podcasts, but I love the fact that you're so young and that you're still a student and that you're trying to learn as well. Um, and, and conducting this uh, podcast is, is really admirable already. Thank you so much. Yeah, I hope to inspire audiences. And of course, speaking to um, experts, even if you don't call yourself an expert, it's, it's great <laughs> to share that with other people. Um, so climate investment involves, of course, like uh, uh, in order to make money, you have to balance environmental impact and kind of striving for sustainability with financial returns. So how do you kind of assess uh, different startups uh, to ensure that they they give returns on both sustainability goals and profitability for for investment. So there's actually a whole process behind uh, the startups that get selected in the climate tech fund. Um, so first of all, there's a there's a climate uh, kind of tech a climate tech uh, investor committee which is independent from the board. Remember, I'm on the board of that. So ultimately, the recommendations come from our um, our IC, our investor committee. So they will look at, as I said, to make sure that we have in the portfolio companies that are tackling the six sectors of decarbonization that are set by the UN. So that we don't all have, you know, companies that are in uh, food and agriculture, or we don't all have uh, companies that are in trans- trying to solve transportation, etc. So a big mix of that. Uh, one of the areas that we look at is that the companies need to be globally scalable. So it's not just a solution for one market. Um, and so because that will then increase uh, the investment returns if there's a real scalability of the business. They do a deep dive on the founders as well, the personality of the founders, the backgrounds. We use metrics actually to, to look at that as well in terms of um, the, you know, the profile of the founders. Um, there's like a success uh, index that uh, we use. Um, and then we look at, you know, the, the, the nitty gritty of all the finances of the company. And we have a whole team doing that actually uh, on the VC side before we finally decide to invest. And then as board members, we also give them other support. We look for other investors for them. We look for board members that could potentially guide them, uh, people who are experts in, in the founders, companies, kind of industry as well. Um, so, so that that could facilitate an exit at some point, because not all companies are going to do an IPO. 
you know, those are the unicorns. So not all companies that you invest in will do an IPO, but you hope obviously that at some point there will be an exit. So either an, uh, another bigger company will acquire them and then you can, um, your investors can get the returns on, on, their, on the money they put in. Um, so there's quite a lot of factors. It's, it's, um, it's definitely not a guessing game. Uh, there's a lot of thought that goes beyond this, you know, into deciding which companies are going to be in our portfolio, which are the ones we're going to invest, how we feel about the founder. That founder plays a big part, you know, uh, their drive to solve, uh, you know, to solve a problem, um, their passion for it. You know, you, we really need to see that because it's going to take a lot of work and, and, and determination to succeed, right? There's so many ups and downs when you're building a company. Okay, and with uh, Investors for Climate, you engage uh, in a lot of networking events and kind of get investors to uh, engage in climate investment. Mm -hmm. And can you elaborate on the strategies uh, or, you know, approaches that you take to communicate long-term value and the potential returns of climate-focused investments? Because it's kind of, it might be kind of a lot of uncertainty uh, and they're not sure if that's the right thing to invest in. So how do you address uh, the concerns of potential investors and uh, convince them yeah. to engage in this? So Investors for Climate is our events uh, that we organize quarterly in Singapore and New York. So I have a partner who's based in New York. And so that that initiative is actually just trying to put in investors, climate investors in a room. So family offices, ultra high net worth, private equity, VCs, you know, um, and then curate events to facilitate the networking of these investors with potential uh, startups who are in this space. So that is one of our ways to to move capital, right? So we're when we're doing these events, we're not trying to convince um, the oh, people right. who attend okay. about uh, you know the viability of investing in climate because they're doing that already. But that that question that you pose is, of course, a very good question. It it is much more about attracting new investors, and that would be more with my VC hat. Uh, you know, when I'm trying to introduce uh, potential investors to our team um, at, at the VC at Investable, um, you know, they'll have questions about the returns and the viability. But I find that in Asia, because, you know, one, you know, there seems to be a, an awareness in Asia because we're so prone to uh, climate change here, we have the most coastal cities in the world. 60% of the population of the world is actually in Asia Pacific. Um, we Four out of five people who are going to be impacted by sea level rise will be living in, in Asia and Southeast Asia in particular. So I feel that there's an awareness and there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of the wealth in Asia is run by families, big families that have generational wealth. And so they're also looking after their own uh, property and investment. And so they realize that, this growing awareness is there and that we need to protect businesses and climate change is real and it's really affecting all of us. I mean, we also, uh, the summer in, in Europe and the U.S. has the hottest ever recorded. Um, the swings in, in the weather and, and the violence of the weather uh, has only been increases, increasing in the last few years. We, we know this very well in Asia with the surges in storms and um, um, and the changes in the weather here, the, the rate is just increasing. So I think the awareness is there. And there is a, there's, a, of course, a, when they invest, they're looking for returns. But actually, the returns are quite good already. And there's a lot of data to point to that. So our returns with a VC like Investable is times 22%. So um, times, it's a 20, uh, times 22 multiple, in, in, meaning that because we invest early, you can expect to get about times 22 of the money you put in. So these are quite good returns. Of course, they're quite high risk in VC, but... Are 
our failure rate is actually quite low with the VC I'm involved with. It's only 15%, which we're not afraid to share because a lot of people don't talk about their failure rate in terms of investment. So I think the, the, the returns on investment in climate have been quite good. Uh, and it's just the kind of investment that we're looking at. So some people talk about investing in, in adaptation adaptation rather than uh, mitigation. So I don't know if you've heard these terms, but you know people are looking at um, solutions that are more about adaptation, meaning that we're not we're, we're basically uh, acknowledging that we can't stop climate change. Now we're just going to invest in technologies that will allow us to adapt to the fact that the climate is changing. Yeah. Um, so so that is also something. So yesterday I was talking to um, uh, an investor who is looking at building floating cities. So that is adaptation, you know, that's saying that, okay, the water is going to rise. So I'm not going to invest in, uh, in, in technology that's just going to stop the, wa- you know, the water from rising. I'm going to invest in technologies that's going to allow me to live with the water rising, um, which I thought was really interesting because that's really uh, something that touches a country like Singapore, which is so prone to sea, sea level rise as well. Wow, it must be really interesting to to see these different ideas come to you as well uh, from yeah, from different people because that's quite a lot of creativity, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> it's survival, I think. <laughs> you know, because this the you know I just came back from Antarctica uh, last March where I went with a team of scientists from the Earth Observatory of Singapore, so they're also one of my clients. So I took a team of sea level rise specialists um, to to go and do research on the Antarctic ice sheet. They brought equipment with them and they were, they were conducting a lot of research on the rate of melt and the implication that this will have in Southeast Asia in particular. And, and it was quite daunting you know, to see because of the scale of Antarctica. If, if one day if all of Antarctica melts, that's going to increase sea level rise by 60%. And if both Greenland and Antarctica melt, that's 70% of sea level rise globally. Um, so they're very aware, these scientists, of, of, of what's happening with these the poles. I mean, as you know, the North Pole is already almost sometimes non-existent in the summer. There's almost no more ice for the polar bears and all that. And Antarctica is different because it's a continent and there's so much ice there, but it is, it is melting at an alarming rate. And, and so that's what scientists are trying to predict, is that the predictions that we've said about sea level rise have actually change and there is an exponential increase in the in the melt of rate because of the warming of the planet and so when i talk to corporates i think a lot of people don't make the connection between what's happening to a warming climate why is the climate warming and what does that mean for our future so a lot of people think that what happens in the poles doesn't impact places like like you know asia but in fact you need to point out that connection And, and it's funny because you think most people would understand that but a lot of people are still not aware of that yeah and I think that that must come with education. And do you think this is a yeah. need, like this education need, do you think it's being addressed, uh, for example, in Singapore, or is that still something that should be worked on? I think there's not enough education all over the world about climate change and the reality of what's happening with our climate and how it's going to impact future generations. So that's number one. I think definitely education is a force. When people are more educated, they, they are it will impact their decisions as consumers, as investors. So education is still key. And also the kind of education and communication, because you see there's so much bad press and bad news yeah. And, yeah. about climate. And I feel that a lot of people, young people I know have climate anxiety. I have climate anxiety, but I know a lot of young people who understand and who are curious and are reading about climate change have climate anxiety. But the problem with climate anxiety is it paralyzes you from action. 
and 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 we need action, right? We need collective action. So I think that there's also an effort to be done around how we communicate about climate change and solutions. We have to keep it hopeful um, because otherwise, if there's no hope, what's the point, right? It, people just put down their their arms and and don't want to do anything to, to try to make a difference. It's, it's really hard to get motivated if you're depressed and, and anxious about the future. So I think there's a there's a role to play to make sure that when we communicate about climate change, it's realistic, but it's also looking at the solution. And that's why I love working so much with the you know, startups and, and, and the investment space, because you're in front of people who are looking for solutions all day long. They're coming up with companies and trying to tackle problems around the world. Um, and we're trying to help them scale it. Uh, and so when you surround yourself with people like that, you feel this sense of hope and this drive that, you know what, we, we can still make a difference. We can take action. We can help scale up some of these solutions, but you know, without forgetting the vulnerable, because the, vul- the most vulnerable people are the ones who contributed the least to climate change, but will suffer the most from it. And that's why my philanthropic work is still so important to me, even though I know that it's just a drop in the, in the bucket. I feel a, a special responsibility to try to do what we can for people who are vulnerable, who need help, who are at the mercy of you know, the crisis. Yeah, that's a very, very important message about um, climate anxiety. And I think it's something that a lot of youth uh, particularly experience because we're kind of in this weird stage where uh, it's difficult to really, really make an impact. And um, it's... Yeah, it's just this idea of not being paralyzed and making small changes where we can. Uh, and no, what you're doing change. today with your podcast is is a perfect example. You know, you, you could just be a busy student, and I know how busy you are because I have kids at UWC too, um, you know, doing IB, etc. <laughs> but you're still doing this. And I think it's, you know, that's something. That's one step in all the global uh, concerns that you have at UWC and the initiatives that you support through your service is also something beautiful. Uh, and it instills values in you that I know that when uh, these kids like you will will come into the workforce, you are never you're not going to forget the people who are vulnerable, the people who you know, need help. But also you're going to look for solutions that are innovative for for our planet. Right. Because it's your it's your shared future. Um, and so all of us need to do that, um, you know, in their in our own way. You know, for me, my passion for sports led me to set up these nonprofits that had sports and adventure at the heart of it because I enjoyed it. So you need to enjoy something, otherwise it's not sustainable, right? So I used my love of adventure and sports to try to raise funds. And over the last, you know, 12 years, I've I've taken hundreds of women on expeditions. We've I've led about 21 expeditions, raised almost two million US dollars for charity. But you know, that's not enough, right? So so now I'm trying to see where I can move capital through my influence and experience and passion towards other solutions. And I think all of us can find a way to, to use our skills and talent and passion and ideas and creativity to, in our own way, advocate, become climate activists uh, in our own way through the choices we make. And the collective effort can be huge, actually. I really believe in that. I'm very hopeful. Because there's so much talent and creativity in the youth, people like you guys. Mm, absolutely. And so turning <laughs> to the two ingre- incredible nonprofit uh, organizations that you've started, Women on a Mission and Her Planet Earth. Uh, so just quoting directly from your sites, Women on a Mission organizes challenging expeditions, dynamic marketing campaigns and events to raise awareness and funds for women uh, survivors of war and to support 
the empowerment of women who have been subjected to violence and abuse. And her Planet Earth's strategy is to organize and promote campaigns and activities to increase visibility of the movement and to raise funds for programs that empower and educate underprivileged women and engage them in environmental issues and conservation activities. Um, could you tell us a bit more about your work in these organizations? I know we've touched a bit on this already in mm -hmm. this conversation, but just expanding a little bit in the in the detail. Happy to do that. So with Women on the Mission, as you know, the focus is supporting women impacted by violence. I mean, we all know that one out of three women will experience some form of physical or sexual abuse in her lifetime. It's a reality that touches many women around the world. Um, it, came, it came to the surface a little bit more, obviously, with the Me Too movement. But it's something, unfortunately, that uh, impacts women, not just in poor communities, but also even in developed countries and rich countries. You know, there is... Um, there is, a, unfortunately, this epidemic of violence against women. And so this is something that uh, my partners and I have decided to tackle in our own way. So one, so we do this by raising funds uh, for the, our key charity partners. And one of them is the main charity partner um, that we support is a charity called Women for Women International. I'm, I actually am on their board as well. And they work on eight war-torn regions, um, and they support women who are survivors of war, who are some of the most marginalized women in the world through an education program. So our funds go to take women through this one-year program that teaches them their rights, that usually um, you know, looks at the, the skills and, and, and gifts that this woman has and helps her stand on her own two feet by either helping her set up uh, her own business or making her ready to join a cooperative of women so that she can be independent, earn her own money. And actually one of the most beautiful experiences in, in the last few years has been when I met some of these women from these programs. And there was one time I met in Rwanda, in Africa in 2017, I met one of those women survivors of war from a genocide in Rwanda. And she was so proud. She was working as part of a crop cooperative making bricks. Um, and she looked me in the eye and she said, I'm no longer poor. You know, I can I can feed myself. My children have enough to eat. They go to school and I have you and your team of women to thank for my good fortune. You know, and, and when you put a woman, woman back on her feet like that, she is able to help her family. She gets her dignity back. She can empower a community and it really impacts the nation. And today, Rwanda has 64 percent of its seats in parliament held by women and they're leading the world in female representation. So I always look at this example and uh, as you know, anything is possible. So that so so over the years, you know, we've worked with charities in, in Singapore as well. You know, Aware Singapore is a gender advocacy group that we've supported. We've raised funds for their um, their sexual assault care program. There's a hotline in Singapore for women who have been assaulted, uh, and they have uh, uh, lawyers also there uh, helping women to 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 learn about what options they have uh, if they're being abused at home. Um, so that work is a team effort. You know, I have many teammates and, and volunteers that are with me on this journey. And we also work as advocates. So anytime we can, we, you know, we sit on panels, we do talks to, to talk about the issue of violence against, against women that touches so many women, unfortunately, around the world. Um, and a lot of the funds go to education programs, basically, around uh, the different charities that we support. And with Her Planet Earth, so it's a, it's a sister NGO. We also take women in expeditions to raise funds for charity. And we focus on conservation uh, initiatives. So, for example, Conservation International is one of our charity partners. We've raised funds for them in Africa. Looking at uh, the funds would go to get um, more women to be employed as rangers, protecting wildlife, because it's traditionally a men's role. Um, or even to work in elephant sanctuaries, rescuing baby elephants that have fallen in uh, wells that don't have their mother anymore. Um, so we, we want the funds to employ more women so that women can 
have stronger livelihoods, but can also uh, support and be kind to nature because elephants are a big part of the ecosystem. We have funded programs in agriculture over many parts of Asia, so helping women grow crops that are more suited for the soil in their region. So, for example, peanuts in mountainous areas uh, where the soil is eroded. And so if the crops that they they grow are, are more resilient to climate change, then it makes their livelihood stronger and it makes their family stronger. So there are simple initiatives like that. We've also worked on uh, initiatives with coral restoration in the Philippines. So um, working with a local NGO that is a marine protected area, uh, taking female divers from Singapore and bringing them to work on coral restoration and to talk to local women in the community about the importance of uh, being custodians of nature. So there, as I said, these are little initiatives over the years, but they've had their own ripple effects. And it's been a learning opportunity for me too, but it also it has been wonderful to support initiatives that basically help women strengthen their livelihoods, you know, and get uh, jobs that allow them to be more resilient to what is happening uh, when they're especially at the forefront of climate change in agriculture, for example. That's so wonderful. And it must be nice for you to hear as well the, the personal stories and the, the feedback from the, the groups that you impact. Oh, yeah. It's so inspiring. It makes me want to work harder, you know, because yes. the women that are the beneficiaries of our program are the ones who are so inspiring because many of them are survivors, first of all, of violence and abuse. And a lot of them are, are you know, from, are impoverished from impoverished backgrounds that are just trying to make ends meet. And they're dealing with, you know, the economic crisis, the violence and, you know, and now climate change that are making their crops more prone to, to being destroyed because of the violent, uh, you know, kind of the violence that we're seeing in the climate. The rate of of, of storms is in, is in only increasing. That's one of the effects of climate change. It's not that we've never had storms in the past. It's that the rate of the intensity of the storm is increasing because of the heating up of our planet. So, yeah, so we need to to remember that by 2050, we will have about over 1 billion climate refugees. Um, and so this is an area that I'm trying to, I'm trying to educate myself about because that's going to impact the work that we're going to have to do in the philanthropic side and even some of the innovations we're going to need to fund because the reality is because of what's happening with climate change, sea level rise, you know, increasing floods and fires, there are going to be more people who are going to have to migrate because of the changes in the climate because they don't have a home anymore. And so that's going to need support on many fronts from governments to open their borders and, and, and help people resettle because they don't have a place to go. Um, we are going to have to have philanthropic programs really focused on helping climate refugees settle and find another way to build a life. And we're also going to need um, economic programs in place to help new populations resettle in other areas. So I think this is something, you know, especially for the youth as well to look at. When you look at philanthropy and the way it's evolving and you look at uh, the, the kind of capital that we're going to need to support vulnerable populations um, suffering from climate change, we're going to have to look at that as well. And that is going to involve a lot of uh, stakeholders. Right. And um, for your organizations, Her Planet Earth and um, Women on a Mission, how do you identify the, the charities that you work with? Because mm. there must be so many. How do you identify the ones that will, yeah. will really make an impact? Of course, there's so many great charities, and the truth is, we get approached by many charities that we we can't all accept and say that I'm going to fundraise for you because we want continuity in some of the funding as well that we have um, done and raised for our current charity partners. So in general, I'm sticking to the ones that I already have, you know, and I have about five or six per 
uh, NGO, and I'm trying to make sure that we continue to fundraise for them. Like, for example, UN Women uh, for Her Planet Earth, we fundraised for them in multiple countries, Cambodia, Vietnam, Sri Lanka, um, uh, in, in different parts, in Nepal as well, in Bangladesh, you know. So I'm trying to work closely with similar entities, Women for Women International, because my co-founder uh, actually met the, the founder of Women for Women International. And because I'm also on the board, this is one of our long-term charity partners from the very beginning. It's been almost 12 years that we've raised funds for them. So we want to continue uh, supporting them. So I think the, the thing is, it's difficult to, you want to fundraise for all the charities, but you can't, and you have to stay really focused in terms of the kind of support that you're trying to do. And that's why I set up two NGOs instead of putting everything in one, because I don't think charities can be everything to everyone. And so that's why I wanted to keep them separate, because even though the model is similar in terms of fundraising, uh, using sports and adventure, the charity partners are different and the focus is different. One is much more environmental and one is looking at uh, violence against women. And I, I didn't want to, to merge the two because I felt that it would take away from the key message as well. Okay, interesting, yeah. And so, unfortunately, we're running out of time. Uh, I would <laughs> no love to continue that. this. I have <laughs> infinite questions to go on no, and any no, random no. tangents. Um, but just one last question for you, which I ask all the guests on this podcast, is if you had one small piece of advice for anyone who is looking to make a change in their communities, uh, what would that be? Well, I guess we touched on this a little bit. You know, I would like um, to say that one of the best ways for you to find fulfillment and happiness, um, you know, is to really find something that you care deeply about and make it central to your life, right? So I wish in a way that I had started my my work supporting women earlier, but it just happened that uh, meeting my co-founder at the time and, and, and it came at a time when I was maybe open to trying to find more meaning and purpose, but it really changed my life and it opened up so many opportunities for me and I've grown so much since then. So when I see that, I realize that, you know, this is the message I'd like to share maybe with young people is that think deeply about what you care about. It can be anything. It could be advocating for animals or the climate or maybe supporting other initiatives that you care about because somehow it connects with your passion or your story. And really try to find a way to support it in some capacity. And if it becomes your main occupation one day, then wonderful. Because I think ultimately, if you really care about it and you're passionate, you're gonna, your life is going to lead you to be more involved in this space. Um, and I can guarantee you that it's going to open up so many other doors and it's going to make you feel so much happier and more fulfilled and more successful as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for sitting down with me today and for sharing your expertise with all the listeners here on this episode. It's a pleasure, Maya. Thank you for asking me to take part. Appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Eat Your Greens podcast. See you next time.